All right. How are we doing, everyone? Okay. Good, good. Uh, last week, we looked at the Lord's Prayer. Um, we challenged you to have it memorized, to re- repeat it three times a day, and sort of ingrain it into your heart and your soul. And, you know, everyone loves the Lord's Prayer. It talks about your good Heavenly Father, how He cares for your needs, He's going to forgive you. Um, He takes care of daily bread, about His coming kingdom. It's all great, and everyone leaves so happy. It's the Lord's Prayer. We love our Heavenly Father. It it all changes this week, (laughs) because today we're talking about money, and this is like top three beloved conversations in church, in Christendom, is when churches talk about money. Um, A couple preliminary notes. First, there are some of you who give faithfully to the church and you're generous with your money to others. And so you're kind of like, I know the drill. I've heard this stuff. Okay. What I'd ask of you today is that you'd be open to what the words of Jesus would have to say to you today. Then there's some of you who, who I was kind of joking about, who when it would like the second churches start talking about money, you've already been like, oh man, come on. Like, it's not, the second syllable of money hasn't even finished, and you're already going, I I don't, you know, and so you've grown numb to the topic of of money, and that might be for a number of reasons, many of them justified. Maybe, you know, you got tired of seeing tele-evangelists on TV asking for money while they have, like, some $20 million home that they're living in. Um, Maybe it's, you grew up in church, and they talked too much about money. It was always about give, 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 and you didn't see a balance in that, or maybe you had a bad experience with money in the church, or maybe um, you just haven't really been generous with your money to the church or to other people, and you've kind of just grown numb to the conviction that you once had. Today, just listen to what Jesus has to say and be open to what he might be speaking to you about. And the third, there's some of you who are at a place where you're going, I can't even think about money or giving money because like, I'm, I'm down to the wire, like I'm holding on to, to next to nothing. And again, for you, listen to the words of Jesus and what he might have to say to you today. This is a very important topic. Jesus speaks more about money and what you do with it than he does faith and prayer combined. Jesus speaks more about money and what you do with it than he does heaven and hell combined. In the entirety of Scripture, there's roughly 2,500 verses dealing with money and what you do with it. So this is no small manner. This is a very big deal in the Scriptures. Now, two other things before we get started. One, uh, I've been highly influenced with my understanding of giving by a guy named Randy Alcorn. He's written several books on generosity and giving, and so um, a lot of my content and some of the illustrations are taken from his work. He's, he's a great guy, and it's not just that he... He has a lot to teach on it. He, he's lived the life. So he talks it and he walks it. So if you wanted to do follow-up, you could look at his work. Um, secondly, the way it's going to work today is like boxing. Jesus is going to make three points, and it's going to feel like a jab and a jab and then the hook to knock you out. That's exactly what it's going to feel like. Just It's one, two, boom, you're down for the count. You're out. And it's like, it's not Rocky two, three, four, five, six, seven, or eight. It's Rocky one. You know, he falls down and he don't, he doesn't win. Apollo just, you know, he's the champion. So that's what it's going to be like, getting knocked out like Rocky in part one. All right. Jab number one. Whoa, am I seeing, am I seeing things? 
Okay. <laughs> it's like, it's already a bad sign. <laughs> sometimes you don't, you don't realize uh, there's really bright lights. And sometimes if, you, if I have the wrong angle, they could kind of get you. And I'm like, look at this one. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, small bit of historical information. Um, At this time, people would store a lot of their their wealth in like actual material goods. So you'd have like nice fabrics, fine clothing, uh, precious stones or metals, uh, gold, silver. And so what Jesus is saying is like, all those earthly goods that you have, they're fading and fleeting, and you're storing them up for yourselves. Don't you know? Moth, moth can destroy some of the fabrics. Rust can get at the metals. And even if you find a way to hide your gold somewhere, a thief can come in and, and steal it. And at this point, what most people do as Christians, we go, okay, we get the point. Jesus is saying Don't be greedy and store up treasures for yourselves. Don't focus on storing up treasures. Don't be greedy. Don't be like that. But that's actually, if you read this slowly and carefully, the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying. He's saying the exact opposite of that. He says, it's not wrong to store up treasure for yourself. The problem is that you are storing up the wrong type of treasure the wrong sort of treasure. You are storing up materially earthly goods, and those are fading and fleeting. Moth, rust, and thief will get to them. Rather, you should store up treasures in heaven. You see that difference? And it's, al- it's almost a little bit like Jesus is, is I mean, I'm going to say it harsher than he is, but it's like, don't be dumb. <laughs> You're investing in all this earthly stuff. It's going to go to nowhere. Like, this, this is not wise. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Think of, um, okay, we're going to do an imagination game. Um, imagine that at some point in the future, a second civil war breaks out in this country. And some of you are going, that ain't that hard to imagine. <laughs> um, so, okay. So picture at some point in the future, a second type of civil war breaks out, and it's West Coast versus East Coast. You know, this guy, the kind of middle states choose which side they are, but, you know, they kind of get washed in the big picture. They have to choose West Coast or East Coast. And let's say you are a family person, and you got uh, your family man, and you got your family living on the West Coast, but all your previous business uh, engagements are on the East Coast. And you're actually kind of a relatively well-off person, a wealthy individual. And as the war breaks out, um, you start to acquire a decent amount of money. The war is actually beneficial for you financially. And at a certain point in the war, each side decides to make their own currency. And this is what happens historically. When some sort of cataclysmic event happens, one side, a victor, will begin to start printing their own money. And so the West Coast, uh, they act first. We're going to mint and print our own money. Now we have our own currency, the West Coast currency. And then the East goes, no, we're not having that. We're going to start printing our own currency, minting our own currency, and we have the East Coast currency. And then all the West Coast states that are on that side, they begin to only accept the currency of the West Coast. And likewise, everybody on the East will only accept the currency of the East Coast. Now it goes on, and you're a businessman on the east, and you're making a ton of money. Now pretend for a moment, hypothetically, 
hypothetically, that you have some type of advanced knowledge that the war is about to end in a few months and the West is going to win. And after the West wins, they will do what always happens. They will make their currency, their dollar, the standard for the entire country. So what do you do if you're wise? You go, I have all my, my wealth, my assets, my businesses. It's all stored in East Coast money, East Coast currency, the East Coast dollar. I need to begin now to convert what, what things I have now to the currency that will ultimately last. Because a battle is being fought and won, there will be an ultimate victor. And at that point, another currency will go on having value. And what East Coast money I have will be devalued and be worth hardly anything. A battle has been fought and won. Has been fought and has been won. And there is a currency that will last beyond mere material goods that we currently possess. You are wise to use your current material possessions to store up for yourself heavenly treasures in the currency that will be lasting everlasting. Another way to look at it. Uh, picture you go on vacation and you get a nice, get a, a decent hotel room. The, the spot you're at is great, but the hotel room, mm, it's okay. And you're there for five whole days. So you start to say, man, I'm going to be here for five days. Uh, this TV in the hotel, too small. Too small. Back home, we got a 70-inch. Man, we're gonna, So I'm going to Amazon Prime. So tomorrow, next day, I get the 70-inch. So at least for the four days while we remain, I have a big giant screen here. And you know what? The mattress here is horrible. I saw a mattress down the road when we were on the freeway. A mattress store. I'm going to get a nice, a better mattress. And you know what? These sheets are horrible. The pillows are, I'm going to get this. I'm going to buy this. These curtains are ugly. I need better curtains. Better everything. And you upgrade your hotel. And you're like, now... For the remaining four days, this hotel is just exactly the type of place I would want to call home. And so you spend your time, money, energy, and resources on a temporary residence, trying to pretend as if that's your permanent residence. We do this. We do as much as we can to make this temporary residence feel as if this is where we'll be forever. And it's just not the case. Jim Elliott says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott was a missionary who died in his 20s. He was trying to reach a certain people, and the people he was trying to reach with the gospel actually killed him. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. There's this haunting story in the Gospel of Luke that kind of illustrates all of this. This is Jesus giving a parable, and he tells them, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store up my crops? And he said to me, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample good laid up for you for many years. Relax and drink and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, 
This night, your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. It's haunting. And you, you kind of see the arrogance of the person in this parable. He speaks to himself, soul, we've got it. I've acquired enough that now I could sort of just kick back, relax, drink, and be merry. I'm going to live the good life. He's turned off to the hurt in the world, the suffering in the world. He's not focused on God's kingdom or anything. He's just like, now I get to live the good life. I'm going to live the good life. And God's like, don't you know? Your soul will be required of you this night. Are you rich in earthly material goods? Or are you rich towards God? It's a haunting passage. Okay. Don't store up treasures on earth. Store up treasures in heaven. That's Jesus' first punch. Got you straight on the nose. You're already bleeding. Jab number two. Punch number two. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is you, if, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, there's all kinds of um, scholarly and academic debate exactly how to interpret this passage because some people would say that ancient people thought that the, the human eye actually emitted the light and some people would say, no, they all knew that light was not emitted by their eyeball. They knew it was just a metaphor. So there's a debate about that. But in that debate, you missed the main point. The point is, how you see the world matters. If your eyes are evil, you will perceive reality in a certain way and how great that darkness will be. Or you can see in a righteous way, in a, in a manner that reflects the Lord, and you'll just see and understand the world differently because you're seeing it through a different lens, through a different eye. A couple stories to illustrate this. One comes from a character in the Bible that he's much celebrated in children's ministry circles all, all across the globe because he's got his own song. This character in the Bible, he's got his own song. His name is Zacchaeus. And so if you grew up in church, growing up to Sunday school, you know his anthem, right? Jesus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. See, it just breaks out. <laughs> man, that little guy climbed up in that sycamore tree. And you know the song. And if you don't know the song, that's fine. It's, it's a good song. And for those of you who knew it, it's stuck in your head now for the rest of the day. You're welcome. We'll be singing it. Right after that, Father Abraham comes on. Okay. If you're, uh, if you're unaware of those things because you haven't been a Christian your whole life, that's fine. We just, people who grew up in the church, they got a whole soundtrack. Okay? So Zacchaeus is a tax collector, and he is taking more taxes than he should from his fellow people, from, from his fellow Jews. And so think, think of it like this. His eye looks at his own people, he looks at the world, and sees human beings as a means to acquire for him. He's going to take their money in an unrighteous manner so that he can have more. See, the eye is corrupted. He doesn't see other individuals. He sees means by which he can acquire more wealth. 
And so he has this radical encounter with Jesus. His life is changed. And then Zacchaeus immediately says, I'm going to give away half of everything I own. And anyone who I took things from, I'm going to return multiple times over. He, he sees the world differently. They are no longer people to take from, but they are people to be blessed. It's the, 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 the difference of the eyes. What's fascinating about that story is it's once Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give half of everything I have, I'm going to make sure I righted all my wrongs, I'm going to give people back their money, it's at that point that Jesus turns and tells him, today, salvation has come to your house. It's at the moment when he says, I will relate to my material resources differently that Jesus says, you get it now. You get the way the kingdom works. There's another story in the book of Acts, chapter 19, where um, people are steeped in occultic practices. So they have all these scrolls of incantations, magical spells, are just completely bought into that. The gospel comes, it changes their lives, and you have these people leaving their occultic practices, and what they do is incredible. They take, like, their scrolls and all the things that were once devoted to, to, to the occult, they, they get rid of it, they burn it. And the text says that it was 50,000 pieces of silver, or kind of it's difficult to put a precise amount, but we're talking something along the lines of 50,000 days wages. It's like all these people come together with all their resources and wealth that were in these scrolls, and they go, they have no value anymore because their eyes have flipped. They look at those things differently. No, get rid of it. I don't care how much it's worth. I have a different treasure now. In the Gospels, in the Gospel of Luke, um, John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus, comes before Jesus, prepares the way, and he's out in the wilderness baptizing people. And people come out to him and they're like, man, we want to be baptized by John. And so it's, this, is, this, is, this is incredible how John responds. People come out, John, can you baptize us? He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's that good old-fashioned type of preaching, man. That's the good stuff. And so how does the crowd respond? Listen. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to him to be baptized, and he said to, they said, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. So you have all these people coming out to be baptized and Luke sp splits them up and addresses three categories, categories of people. John kind of talks to the common person, the tax collector, and the soldier. Now, did you catch what every response has, has in it? Every single response to what are we supposed to do has to deal with money, possessions, and what they do with it. You have two tunics. Give away one. If you have food, you must share. You, stop cheating people of money. Collect only what you're authorized to do. 
You, Roman soldiers, do not extort any more money. You be satisfied with your own wages. Every single response has to deal in some way or another with money and possessions and what we do with them. As we started, the Bible and the Gospels are filled with discussions about money. And we kind of we don't like it. It's like, oh man, we don't talk about money. We don't talk about that. And, and, and I, might, I, I suggest to you that the reason why we don't like talking about it or looking at the stuff that Jesus has to say about it is uh, because it's hitting a nerve. Like it hits a nerve, right? It does for me. Every single one of these things is cr- incredibly challenging. If I had two tunics, I don't want to give one away. I want to get a third one. You know what I mean? Have you ever wanted something so bad and you, told, you, you said, soul, if I can acquire this, then I shall be happy. And then you got it. And the next day, soul, why are you so downcast? And then I said to my soul, I will acquire more. First jab, don't store up treasures on earth, store up treasures in heaven. Second jab, don't let your eye be evil because it corrupts everything. Now here's the hook. This is the knockout. This is Rocky Balboa going down. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You get God or you get money. Pick your God. And the reason why this is so convicting is because as Christians, we don't, if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't wake up in the morning going, oh, God of money, I want to serve you today. You know, you don't say, man, my God is money. The New Year's resolution is that I would serve money all the more. You don't do that. It's more subtle, more sneaky than that. What you typically do, what we all typically do is by our actions and sometimes even by our words, but many times by our actions, what we demonstrate is that we want God the one true God to be 70, 80% our God. But we're still going to serve money like 30%. God, you know I serve you 80%. My heart is 80% yours, 20% that other guy's, money guy. And so it's not like we straight up pick one or the other, but what is Jesus doing? He's cutting through that. Like a sword, he just cuts through it. No, it's not 50-50, it can't be 60-40, it can't be 70-30, it cannot even be 90-10, nor 99-1. You either serve me completely, or you hate me. You can't serve both. You don't get to, you don't get to do that. But that's the temptation and the sin, is that it's, it's not just complete abandonment of God, it's this syncretism of faith and loyalty to the one true God, and also faith and loyalty to money. Now, Some of you who know the King James Bible might remember this saying, you cannot serve God and mammon because mammon was this this God, this deity of money. And so what's happening is there's a personification taking place that, that money actually becomes this kind of God. And that's actually how it works. We, we, we trust in it. We serve it. We spend our time and energy worrying about it, being anxious about it. We do whatever we can to acquire more. Many of us have sacrificed our children on the altar of money and success. 
would rather work more hours and get more money than being there for our own kids? And so you don't get to do that. You have to choose whom you will serve. There's a couple stories in the scriptures that bring this point out. Um, both very popular. The first one deals with the widow, Luke chapter 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into an offering box and saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Okay, picture for a moment. Let's transport this woman to today. She's a widow and has very little money. And she decides in her heart, I need to give what little I have. I'm going I'm to give it all to God. I'm going to give it all to God. So picture her showing up in a small group. Or maybe you're talking with a group of friends after church. And she's new to the church and she's, she just tells you, you know, I feel good about this, but I got this overwhelming conviction that the last $100 I have in my bank account, I just need to give it to God. Do you know what most of us would do at that point? We try to convince her not to. No, no, no. That's your last hundred dollars? No, so, okay, there's this thing. It's called the principle of the tie that means 10%. So keep 90, give 10. But she's like, no, I have a conviction. Like, I feel it. God wants me to trust him, and I trust him. I'm going to put my last hundred dollars in. But we'd probably try to convince her otherwise. Nevertheless, this woman is... This isn't in the Gospels just as like, here's some random cool story. She is held up as a model. Jesus says, look to this widow. Look at her. And it's included in the scriptures. It was very difficult to make these manuscripts in the ancient world. So when you read your Bible, know that if something's in there, it's because the biblical authors said this is super important. It was a very difficult process to, to write on these manuscripts. Difficult, the price, it's very, very difficult. So when it includes something, it's like, look at this. Look at this woman. Look at her faith. She trusts me. She walks with me. When she says, give us this day our daily bread, she means it. Now, if the, ch- if the church is healthy, they understand this. And so what would happen naturally and organically is that someone in that small group goes, that woman gave her last $100? How are we going to bless her? How are we going to bless her? Because the issue is not scarcity. The issue for us is not that there's not enough. It's that we don't want to share enough. This starts when we're toddlers, right? Like, there, there's something that happens cognitively, and you can see it when you, if you have kids. Like, they just realized that something... It goes like this. They're sharing, having fun, Mine. Mine. And that carries out through the rest of our lives. So with the church, it's not an issue of scarcity. It's how, how can we be generous to another? So it's the, the point of this is, and then the widow did not have enough to eat. It's God will provide. And he's going to provide through his body, through other believers. So there's no one in need. Now here's the opposite story of this woman. Many of you know it as the story of the rich young ruler. A ruler, who we find out later is wealthy, asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I want want eternal life, man. 
I want heaven. What do I got to do? And Jesus is, is like, you know the commandments, right? Do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery. And this rich young ruler responds, all these I have kept from my youth. Now notice, if you're familiar with this passage, Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus does not say, come on, man. You just lied by saying you've kept them all since your youth. Jesus says, you can have it. Yeah, okay. You've kept all of them. Good for you, buddy. You can have it. And at this point, you have to realize this guy is a class act, like a model, a model follower of the Lord. He's been wise with his money. He's kept the commandments. Um, he's got his act together. It's the type of dude that if you're a father, you go, I want my daughter to marry a guy like this. An upright class act who, who has been wise with his money will provide, yeah, this guy's great. And Jesus turns to him and he says to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that, he had become sad, said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Like, the dude's doing all this stuff right, and Jesus goes, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and then you come follow me. And at this point, the conviction is heavy because we start saying things like, whoa, I don't know if I can do that. Uh, does, Jesus, does Jesus want everyone to sell all they have and give to the poor? Is that what Jesus wants? Because you're feeling it, right? And then this is what happens. We go, no, of course Jesus doesn't want every last person to give everything they have for the poor. Jesus encountered tons of people, and he didn't say give everything you have and sell it to the poor. This is just to this one guy. And you say, well, why is it just to this one guy? Well, because money was his God. You know, money was his God, and he couldn't serve Jesus as long as that money was in the way. And so you were terrified because you might be thinking, man, God wants me to sell everything I have and give to the poor. No, that's just for people who have money as their God. Whew, that's a relief. Is it? Is it? And the way you can check yourself is you go, if Jesus were to show up and he were to say, sell your house, all that equity that you stored up, sell it, give it away, just trust me, would you be able to do it? And you'd be saying, oh, that's an unfair question because how would I know that that's Jesus? Like it could be an imposter trying to like take my money. No, it's a hypothetical situation. The Son of God comes down in his glory. You know it's him. And he says, I know your heart. Sell your house. Sell your car. Fill in the blank. Whatever material possession you have, get rid of that and trust me. Would you hesitate? Would you blink? Or would you say, God, everything I have is already yours. Everything I have is because you're generous hand. You're my king. So if you say to sell this, uh, uh, I'll follow you. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Give me this day the daily bread. Help me to trust you. 
And so, by, and by the way, this doesn't just, that, that idea doesn't just apply to money. It can be like a dysfunctional, unhealthy relationship. God says, stop that. Get rid of it. Do you hesitate? You say, no, no, not that. It could be fill in the blank. It could be anything. You know, some of you might be wrestling like, man, well, what if Jesus asked for my PlayStation 5, man? I don't know if I could do that. See, what happens is whenever Jesus speaks strongly to us, we try to wiggle out of it. Oh, this is just for that one guy. It surely doesn't apply to me. Money's not my God. Not, not even a little bit. We try to wiggle out. And this is all across script. Whenever Jesus speaks in this manner, we try to w- wiggle out of it. Pick your ethical issue of the day. Pick one. And watch people squirm and wiggle out the clear teaching of Jesus. It's like, ah, that's too... Mm. So check your heart here. Like, seriously. And I'm, I'm... This isn't like... I've checked my heart, and the reason why I'm preaching here is because just like that, I, like, only God knows our hearts. But we can, we can test our own hearts and ask ourselves some serious questions and say, Lord, are you, are you my treasure? Are you number one in my life? If that rich dude showed up into our small group, let's say he's a successful CEO of a startup in Silicon Valley, and he's, you know he's rich. You know, he tries to hide it, but the dude brings like lobster and ribs to small group every, every, every like, you know he's got money, like, you know. And he's like, a lot of you don't know this, but I'm a pretty wealthy man, you whisper to your neighbor. No, we all know, man. We've been waiting for Christmas to come around, and hopefully you leave us a good gift. He's like, no, I know you don't know how rich I am, but I'm a pretty wealthy man. I have a burning conviction in my heart that God wants me to give all my money away. Because I think money and success has become my God, and I'm a slave to it. I need to give it all away. I can't, ha- I can't be in a healthy relationship with money. It consumes me, and I serve it, and it's a God. What do we do in that small group? We convince them not to do it. Okay, look, I, we really love that you have this big conviction to serve God, but um, here's the thing. What you could do is you can give like a certain percentage, and then you should probably, here, this is just me giving you wise advice. Buy a house cash because you're rich so that if you never get up off your feet, you at least have something to fall back on. Like you got a house cash. Buy yourself a really nice call, car. You're in your 30s, so if you, you treat it right, you may be able to get 20 years out of it, so you only have to buy one other car. Um, but yeah, set yourself up. Give, just give a portion and set yourself up so you're secure. And the guy says, no, you don't understand. Money is my God. I can't serve Jesus as long as I have my wealth. No, sure you can, man. I'll teach you for a fee. (laughs) What does Jesus tell this guy? Sell everything you have. And guess what happens? Jesus and the rich young man, they leave sad. They're grieved. This isn't, sometimes we look at this story like, what's wrong with this guy? Everyone is sad in this situation because the grip of money had such control. He knew what he should do. He knew it and he didn't have it in him. Okay. 
Next part, super convicting. Super convicting. Uh, and then we'll, we'll, we're not going to completely leave it, but we're going to try to come back on up a little bit. Okay. Uh, this is, I'm going to read you a quote from a book by a pastor named John Piper. And I've shared this quote with you years ago, years ago. Um, and John Piper, at the time, was retiring from his church. He's now been retired for quite some time. But he's trying to address... Um, people who are in a similar phase of life, of retirement, and how they've, they've kind of spent their life acquiring, and now they're at a phase where it's very easy to just say, soul, now be merry, drink, and eat, and live the good life. His book is called Don't Waste Your Life, and this section is called An American Tragedy, How Not to Finish Your One Life. I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in, North, in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot boat, play softball, and collect shells. At first when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my seashells? This is a tragedy, and people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. That's heavy. Now, again, some clarification. Is it wrong to, to play softball? Is it wrong to retire and walk on the beach shores collecting seashells? No, none of that is. But that's fundamentally different than spending the first two-thirds of your life to acquire and acquire and acquire so that the last third of your life can be spent just on you living the good life. That's the evil eye. That's not storing up treasures in heaven. What the Christian says is, Lord, as long as there is breath in my lungs, I want to serve you. As long as my heart's beating and there is air in these lungs, Lord, let me serve you. We've been sold on that, right? Spend the first two-thirds of your life climbing and ascending so that you can have enough so that the last third, the last second, and, and, or the last 10%, you can just be focused on you. So go on the vacation. Collect the shells. Everyone knows that, like, I love the ocean. I love fishing. In and of itself, nothing wrong with that. But you get that evil eye. And now I could focus on myself. And that haunting phrase is, picture them on the day of judgment. What did you do with the last three decades of your life, last four decades? Lord, look at all the seashells we have to offer. That's not the, the Christian life. We serve God till our dying breath. And I know that's difficult for people, depending upon where you're at in life, because there's some of you who would be like, Look, I feel super convicted of that, but I, I am old. My body's frail and fragile. Uh, it hurts just to get here to church. I say, great. Maybe, maybe you can be a greeter. Maybe you can be an usher. 
Maybe you can help in, in the children's department. The point, the point isn't that you have to go be a missionary and lay down your life. You can die daily and serve others in your current context. And maybe, and I felt this extra conviction in first service because we know that there's people watching online who are at a point in life where they can't even get to church. You say, well, I, that just, I feel so horrible because I don't have anything to offer. I have no money. I can't serve. I can't even be a greeter. I can't help in children's ministry. And, and what I said was this. Commit, commit an hour of your day to praying for God's people. If you're in a bed and you're bedridden and you can't walk, let the, the murmurs and mumbles that come off your lift be prayers to your God. Say, this is the only sacrifice I have, Lord. I'm praying for your church, your people, and I'm praying that people would come to know your son, Jesus. The point is, you don't live a life that says, how do I ultimately make it good for me? Why? Because this place is not, this place is the hotel. You're here for a few days, and eternity is much longer. So three, three, three words, real easy, um, and you've heard these three words here before and in other, other, probably other places, but if you want to dethrone money as a God in your life, three sort of just practical kind of things you can begin to do. You can become a regular, sacrificial, cheerful giver, a person of generosity. And let me, let me preface this really quick. This is not the message where it's become regular, sacrificial, cheerful. That means, um, man, so at this morning's offering, make sure to, to give to the church. The Christian's understanding is like, of course I should be generous to the church. We're, we're about God's kingdom. I want you to be generous in all of your life. I want you to be known as a generous person. I would not care for your soul if I just said, well, you want to know the way to, to solve today's sermon is write a check to the church and then you're, then you're good. Because you can give to a church or a charity or anything and still not be a generous person. And we'll walk through how that works in a second. Christians are called to be generous because our Father has been generous to us. So one of the things you could do is become a regularly kind of generous person. You wake up every day, you go to sleep every day, you eat every day. It's a part of who you are, it's what you do. Make giving a part of who you are and what you do. To church, yes, but to other people in, 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 that you come into contact. When you, when you hear of a need in the church, when you hear of the widow who gave her last $100, secretly surprise her with 200 Be a generous person. One of the things you could do, it's a, here's a simple thing. Um, you can, if you make a budget, like you got all your items, your, your, your rent, maybe a car payment, groceries, try to put in like a small amount and call it like a blessing fund so that when you see a, a need, a small need, you've already planned ahead to be able to provide for this, this need. And this could be something very small, like someone at the grocery store, you see them paying with cash, and they're 10 bucks short. You already have this thing built in to your budget where, excuse me, can I pick, I saw your little, can I pick this up? Like, it's, it's no problem, I'd love to. And then, and then there, you know, people be, oh my gosh, thank you, why would you do that? I'm just, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm blessed. I'm blessed, I'm rich in heaven. This 10 bucks doesn't mean much to me. 
And then they say, well, if that, that's the case here, I got some lobsters I like to put up in here. You go, whoa, wait a second, man. But do you see how the, it, it's not just about writing a check? It's about developing a heart of generosity because God is regularly and consistently generous to us. And the second point of this is sacrificially. Um, we are called to be living sacrifices. One of, the, one of the ways you can test your giving is if it stings when you do it. Some people are well, well, well off enough where you can give, let's say you, you say, I'm going to give 10% of what I give. I'm going to just give it away. And like, it doesn't hurt you at all. There's no sting to it. Um, the person who gives $5 in the, in the offering that day, it might have stung more. And so you just check your heart. Am, am I giving to the point that I'm sort of like, oh, man. And then you go, Lord, you've been good to me. You provided. That's why I have an abundance. You give me daily bread. So help me to continue to be more and more generous like you are. And then the last thing is cheerful. Super important. Because, again, oftentimes you can get guilted into giving. And that is not ever the appropriate Christian tactic. Ever. Because Christian giving is supposed to be cheerful. So the point is not to make people feel guilty. Oh, man, I'm going to write this check, put in this thing, man. Make me feel all bad. Dumb sermon. It was like, that misses the whole point. We're called to be cheerful givers. It's, Lord, Look how good you've been to me. I want people to know your goodness. So whatever material resources I have, if you want to use those to, to use me to bless others and in turn they might look up to you, great. When do we start? And it's a cheerful activity. God, you're my king. You are my treasure. And so when you look at these words, that's how you know you're making progress. That's how you know you're dethroning the God of money in your life. When it's regular, it's sacrificial, and it's cheerful. You're beginning to dethrone the God of money in your life. And Jesus tells us um, that's a very wise thing for you to do. Not only because it's the right thing to do, it's actually wise for you to do so. He's like, the way you're investing is great and fine. Uh, you know, you got, mm, your Bitcoin did okay up until last week. Um, but, you know, you, you don't understand the type of investment I'm talking about. Because the investment of heavenly treasure is like a thousandfold. And more importantly, it's not fading and fleeting treasure. So most of us live our lives concerned about the dot on the left. We'll say the dot on the left is your earthly life. That's your earthly life. And we spend our time, our money, our energy, our focus, our attention, our resources on that little circle. Not just money, time, energy, our anxious thoughts, our stresses, our worry, our focus, our attention, all of it's like focus on this one thing. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you believe that after this earthly life, there is still eternity. And so what you do in this short little life really does matter. There is suffering in the world. There is an immense pain in the world. People are hurting. We talked about that last week with the Lord's Prayer. What will Christians do against these evil things? What will they have to say to suffering and human pain? And so we use our time, our money, our resources, energy, all of it to invest in God's kingdom, which is forever. That line just doesn't end at the end of the screen. It goes on forever. 
So it's incredibly important. It's incredibly important. C.S. Lewis says, he who has God and everything has no more than he who has God alone. You have God and everything else, and you got nothing more than the person who just has God. And so it, it really reveals a lot about us when we examine what we do with our material resources. Time, money, energy, attention, focus. It reveals something. It's revealing where our allegiance is, where our first and foremost allegiance is. And here's the thing. So much of what we value, what we look forward to, what we spend tons of money on, a new iPad, a new car, whatever it may be, it's going to end in a landfill. It will be rubble. Some of your most valuable possessions will end up in a landfill. They will be rubble and they will be forgotten. And at the end of your life, trust me, you're not going to be caring about that stuff. I want you on your deathbed to be able to look back and say, faulty, I'm faulty, broken, I failed so much, I have so much sin in my life, Lord, but you know, a lot of times, man, I did, I did, I did, I did my best, man. I tried to care for others. I try to help others. I try to, to spend my love on the right things, spend my money on the right things. And I want you praying the last week of your life as your body is failing you and you can't serve in any way but offer up prayers to your king. And then you go and close your eyes and you go to your Lord and you don't show him a bunch of she cells. She cells. That's what we want as Christians, to the last breath in our lungs so we're serving our king. He who has God has everything and everything has no more than he who has God alone. We're going to transition to communion and close with a worship song. In 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul the Apostle says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Christ is king of kings, Lord of lords, in heaven. He comes down into poverty and dies the slave's death on the cross. And he does that to take us who are spiritually poor and wretched and to adopt us into his royal family and bring us into his kingdom, which is everlasting. That is forever. This life is a blip. Stop spending all your time, money, and attention on a hotel that you're here in for four days. And for those of you Man, for those of you who you're going like, man, this life is pretty difficult. It feels like a horrible hotel room. The hotel room that smells bad, there's cockroaches. Everything's bad. Blankets, everything's, everything's been horrible. Whatever horrible hotel room you've been given in this life, it's still a hotel room four or five days and the house that has been prepared for you you have no clue because our God is good he's the good wise father who loves to surprise his children so whatever card you've been dealt in this life be faithful with it because he'll be faithful to you
Let's stand as we take communion. Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. You take it and remember. And so today we remember the king who left everything for our sake became poor, died the slave's death on a cross in order that he might adopt us into his family in order that we might know the riches of his grace. So we remember today. Jesus takes a cup. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant. It's his blood poured out. And as we always say, it's a way to declare our allegiance. And so today we want to say, Lord, we want our allegiance to be you and not to wealth, money, or our possessions. We want our allegiance to be you. We can't serve two masters. So Lord, we ask that by your spirit, you would forgive us when we fail and fall and that your spirit would also empower us to give true, unadulterated allegiance to your son, our king. Father, as we close in worship, we pray that you would be honored, that you would be placed as number one in our hearts and minds in these moments, that whatever wealth you've given us, whatever poverty we might, we might be in, whatever we may be on the spectrum, that we would use this life for your kingdom and your glory. May you be honored in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.